All right, so we're looking at Thomas Aquinas, and it's kind of interesting, actually, because, okay, the nature of God. Thomas believed that the existence of God is, I'm going to just uh, skip a lot of the text because it's a little hard to read. Uh, Thomas believed the existence of God is self-evident in itself, but not to us. So what he said was, therefore, I say that this proposition, God exists, of itself is self-evident, for the predicate is the same as the subject, right? Now, because we do not know the essence of God, the proposition is not self-evident to us, but needs to be demonstrated by things that are more known to us. Again, this goes back to Kierkegaard's leap of faith, really. I mean, that's the basis of his, you know, God exists because we wouldn't exist if not for God, right? We know God exists not for knowledge of his essence, but for his effects, which is what they go on to say here. Now, because we do not know the essence of God, the proposition is not self-evident to us, but needs to be demonstrated by things that are more known to us, though less known in their nature, namely by effects, right? So I think I kind of, you know, summarize that a little easier. He's like, God exists because all that does exist exists because of God. We know it because of miracles that happen, that sort of shit, right? Thomas believed that the existence of God can be demonstrated briefly in his Summa Theologiae and more extensively in the Summa Contra Gentiles. I'm pronouncing that like French, not uh, Latin. Uh, he considered in great detail five arguments. So, uh, motion. Some things undoubtedly move, though cannot cause their own motion. Since, as Thomas believed, there can be no infinite chain of causes of motion, there must be a first mover, not moved by anything else, and that is what everyone understands by God. So once again, that's his leap of faith, like Soren Kierkegaard believed. There is a God because none of this would happen if it weren't for God, right? Um, locomotion, like a plant growing, if were not for God, wouldn't exist. Again, this is all a product of its time. This is really predates any understanding of science, really, to a... a you know. So causation, as in the case of motion, nothing can cause itself. An infinite chain of causation is impossible. So there must be a first cause called God, right? So when they break down something, because there's actually an interesting argument, because there's the whole evolution, creation, then there's the Big Bang. But in reality, it's not unlike our political discourse today. There is actually an in-between. There are religious people who believe in the Big Bang, but actually believe in a more evolved, pardon the pun, um, interpretation of Thomas Aquinas's belief. So what they say is no creation, right? Dinosaurs existed, you know, the Earth's older than 6,000 years. I mean, again, product of its time. But they believe that the Big Bang, the causation, was God. So that is their proof of God. Whereas Thomas Aquinas would say the sunrise is proof of God. They go back and say, well, the Big Bang itself, because God knew. Or even the creation myth itself. And it's arguably, possibly, kind of an understanding of the Big Bang. Somehow we had maybe a genetic memory of this, but that's a whole separate thing. But if you look at almost any religious or, or cultural... Um, segment of the world, they have a creation myth that really is very similar. The best would probably be the Australian Aborigines or maybe the North American Indians because both of them were very separate from 
what we consider organized religion. Their idea was much more natural nature, sort of, you know, at one with the universe. So if you look at their creation myths, it really does, in a lot of ways, again, product of its time as well as mythology, right? So the Indians, for example, use a lot of, well, so do the Aborigines, use a lot of uh, animal imagery, right? Uh, like the raven, it refers to something, or the, the orca in the Haida culture, right? Representing a spirit, and more than just like a spirit the way we see it. I mean, an ethos. It represented the good of man, or whatever it might be. But again, going back to the causation thing, um, that's his second. He's saying, the earth is here, that's proof of God, right? We have a finite mind, so therefore we cannot comprehend the infinite so we're incapable of even recognizing God if he were to walk among us right so it's that that supports their belief that causation is proof absent of a first cause essentially even in spite of a first cause that can be proven well that is your evidence of God third is the existence of necessary and the unnecessary. Our experience includes things certainly existing, but apparently unnecessary. Not everything can be unnecessary, for then once there was nothing, and then there would still be nothing. Therefore, we are compelled to suppose something that exists necessarily, having this necessity only from itself, in fact itself the cause of other things to exist. That, I don't even understand. So existence of necessary and of the unnecessary. Our experience includes things certainly existing, but apparently unnecessary. Okay, I get it. Uh, not everything can be unnecessary for then once there was nothing. See, that's the sentence I don't understand. That's just an absolute pull from the Latin and I don't know. Yeah. But the first sentence, existence of necessary and unnecessary. Our experience includes things certainly existing, but apparently unnecessary. And then the final explanation of this is, therefore, we are compelled to suppose that something that exists necessarily, having this necessity only from itself, in fact, itself the cause for other things to exist. So it's kind of preempting the argument saying, um, I mean, I'm actually the whole time reading that. I'm struggling for an example that, that isn't just funny. Um, I don't know. I, I, the only one that's coming to mind right now is, is nipples on men. If you remove, you know, nursing of a baby from that, it's completely unnecessary. But again, this goes down to the creation of man. But let's be honest. It's an absolutely superficial item, right? It serves no purpose whatsoever, right? So that argument could be made, well... If you have something that is absolutely useless, uh, I mean, an argument could be made, say, maybe in, uh, at this time of writing, a plague or pestilence, like, say, locusts. Kind of hard for somebody to understand why locusts exist. If causation, right? If anything that exists is proof of God, it's hard for someone from the Middle Ages to understand how such a horrible thing like a plague, it's a little bit easier for them, like say something like um, uh, a plague or tuberculosis or cholera, kind of an invisible um, threat. So they kind of, you know, think of back then they were thinking about malodors and 
you know, stuff in the ether or just you being a bad person could cause these sorts of diseases. Um, or even, you know, sin, right? But in reality, it's kind of hard to argue the locusts. And that's what I think three is speaking to. Someone were to come to a priest and say, okay, I understand the motion, right? Locusts exist because they're imbued with by God or whatever. Causation. The, the, the locusts are here, right? So if causation is proof of God, locusts are proof of God. God created locusts. Locusts do a ton of damage and provide very little benefit. Now we can go and say, yeah, they feed this, they feed that. Now, it was an oversimplification. And again, like I think, like I said earlier, I think it was to preempt the argument, if locusts exist, why is God? I mean, the other argument is suffering, right? But So this is to preempt those. And what it's saying is locusts are there. And I mean, a simple argument would be, it is, you know, to teach people humility, to teach people you know, uh, impermanence, what have you, right? Because the locusts come and they'll destroy all our crops. And it's a learning lesson and all this sh stuff, right? So gradation is the next one, the fourth. Fourth in uh, the five ways that Thomas Aquinas outlined uh, what is the nature of God or the proof of the existence of God. Quinque viae, the five ways. The fourth being gradation. If we can notice a gradation in things, in the sense that some things are more hot, good, etc., I would argue I'll use, no, I'll finish reading first. There must be a superlative that is the truest and noblest thing, and so most fully existing. This, then, we call God. So what he's talking about is because there is hot and cold, there is good and bad, uh, duality, essentially, is what he's talking about. The duality of life is proof of God, right? Because there is a best thing. And really where I think this um, comes from is exactly what I've... Oh, I don't think I even mentioned it in this recording. My belief that the nature of religion boils down to uh, encouraging man to make a choice. A choice in anything. The, the two choices are either to be selfless, compassionate, giving, understanding, empathetic, or selfish. Arguably the nature of man, arguably even the, uh, you know, inherent sin of, of the human being could be where the basis of, you know, um, everybody having sin at birth is because we are the human animal. Like Nietzsche said, man would be a god if not for his stomach or his avarices, right? Um, so that's what we're talking about here. What he's trying to say is when there is something wonderful and something horrible, and it almost goes back to the existence of necessary and unnecessary. And it's not a bad argument. And the way I might explain it, again, it's where I come from, but the Buddhist perspective of yin and yang or the Taoist perspective of yin and yang, whatever. Yin and yang. Black and white, good and bad, right? There is no, almost flies in the face of what we're talking about here because they talk about a truest or noblest thing. What I was getting at is the truest or noblest thing, sorry, I, I got off topic there. So yes, um, when they're talking about the best or the noblest thing, I think the root of that is to teach people to be their best self. 
right? Mm -hmm. You can be a jerk. You can steal. <coughs> you can steal and you can... Uh, You could just be a jerk, and you can still get by in life. And sometimes, some people succeed. I mean, that's something we see every day where people... For sure. Yeah. But this is speaking to a truest or noblest thing, a pedestal, and idolatry even, arguably. <laughs> but what we're talking about here is be your best self. You know, there is a greatest... He's the best, you know, priest. He's the most uh, penitent man. He's the best whatever... And the, the duality, the, the, you know, it's the necessary and unnecessary, an oversimplification of what I believe to be black and white of life, right? It's like the Japanese, they appreciate the cherry blossom, not just because of its beauty, but because of its impermanence and the rarity of perfection because, you know, it's a crapshoot what you're going to get. Right when it comes to that, so that's four. I would say he's talking about how things are good, things are bad. It's an argument of proof of God. It's a test. It's a challenge. All those sorts of things you've heard before, right? And the fifth one is ordered tendencies of nature. A direction of actions to an end is noticed in all bodies following natural laws. Anything without awareness tends to a goal under the guidance of one who is aware. Okay? And he says, this we call God. The ordered tendencies of nature. And what he's talking about is sunrise, sunset, you know, uh, cause and effect sort of thing. Um, a direction of actions to an end is noticed in all bodies following natural laws. So it's kind of like a physics sort of thing. You know what I mean? You drop something, it falls. Um, so anything without awareness tends to a goal under the guidance of one who is aware. And that's... This one's a little more complicated, the fifth, the order of tendencies of nature. It's, there's been actual whole treatises, treatises written, treatises written on this single subject. Talking about um, trees grow and um, cause and effect. So he goes on and he's talking about concerning the nature of God. And this is what I started with because I was going to talk about uh, the, what uh, Thomas Aquinas believed the goal of life. And what I mentioned earlier, because I was going to get to it eventually, that the, uh, the nature of religion is uh, being a choice, encouraging a choice for either selfish or selfless pursuits. So Thomas felt the best approach, commonly called the via negativa, is, considered, is to consider what God is not when concerning the nature of God. What is God? This led him to pro propose five statements about the divine quality. So God is simple, without composition of parts, such as body and soul, or matter and form. I argue this kind of flies into the face that we are unable to understand the essence of God, so for him to... Start with the fact that, you know, God has no body or soul and all that. Kind of silly, right? If he's trying to say that, you know, he, we are unable to understand the essence of God, yet, yeah, I'm going to tell you that, you know, he doesn't have a body or a soul or a matter or form. Neither here nor there. This really goes back, maybe it's a mistranslation. Maybe this goes back to the simple 
um, belief that the nature of God is beyond our understanding. So, right? Arguably, is without our understanding of composition, without our understanding of a form or a body or a soul. So two, God is perfect, lacking nothing. That is, God is distinguished from other beings on account of God's complete actuality. Thomas defined God as the ipse actus ascendi subsistence. Subsisting act of being. That really kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Gradation. We exist, we are flawed, therefore there must exist a version that is perfect, right? When he was talking about a truest or a noblest thing. This is this be like, right? It's kind of a weird, um, right? We can actually go axis ascendi. Uh, here's, uh, I mean, I don't know where this is coming from, but, ah, well, we won't go and just, we'll just stick with what we can use here. So, again, God is perfect, lacking nothing. Again, this has to do with the leap of faith. Um, it's a combination of, a, of much of his theories above, again, arguably, product of his time and a guy living in a tiny little room without a lot of fresh air. Um, third, in his uh, five um, statements concerning the nature of God, third, God is infinite. We spoke of this earlier. That is, God is not finite in the ways that created beings are physically, intellectually, and emotionally limited. Again, goes back to He's not the same, he's not like us, he is a perfect version, that sort of stuff, right? <clears throat> this infinity is to be distinguished from infinity of size and infinity of numbers, right? I don't know why that was added. I don't know if Thomas actually mentioned that. The infinite has always been known as an unintelligible, an untouchable, an uncomprehensible power, state, any of that. Um, that's all it's getting to, I guess, in a modern sense. Most people believe infinity to be, you know, an uncountable number, when in reality it can be a lot of intangible, uh, incalculable, you know. Uh, and in this case, an unintelligible. And when I don't mean incomprehensible in the sense that it doesn't make sense, I mean lack of comprehension on our part, right? So four, God is immutable, incapable of change on the levels of God's essence and character. So what that means is he, he's, he's all-powerful. That's where you come to your omnipotent. But he's also unchanging, which is arguably kind of weird to even say that. Once again, if he is so immutable and infinite, how would we know either? Right? If God is, an inf is infinite or unknowable, how can we know that he's immutable? I mean, again, this is a Soren Kierkegaard leap of faith. You have to understand that this man believes beyond all doubt in what he's talking about. So this really is a product of that again, I think. Right? Uh, 
And finally, he says, God is one, without diversification within God's self. The unity of God is such that God's essence is the same as God's existence. In Thomas's words, in itself, the proposition God exists is necessarily true, for in it, subject and predicate are the same. Right? Existence is God. This goes back to when he was talking about causation, right? Everything exists because of God. God exists because everything exists. It's kind of like, uh, it's, it's really quite silly. Um, but it's really not wrong. I mean, it really just boils down to if there is a God, we are not capable of understanding it. I would say that's perfect. Okay. What you just said. Now, what I was going to was the goal of life. Because I was talking about it seems odd that a very religious person, particularly from a judo, well, let's just say Christian, Christian faith, wouldn't go around being compassionate and empathetic and understanding and, and uh, charitable and all that. Um, again, this whole tribalization. I mean, I argue, and that's I argued earlier, the, the root could be um, the, the Catholic uh, Church um, trying to keep... Uh, Sex, I don't want to use that word because it sounds bad, but again, smaller offshoots of the religion, and arguably, it's always been, um, it's always been kind of uh, contrary to a lot of beliefs, uh, then and, and, and uh, even now, right? It's kind of, kind of like, and this is where we come to the Thomas Aquinas, because Thomas Aquinas is the basis of Western philosophy in that, you either agreed with him or you disagreed, and that was the basis of your treatise or your, your philosophy. And this is where I'm coming with the Catholic religion, the Christian religion. Um, it's so pervasive, but more so because all religions or offshoots, at least in, in the Christian side, are kind of, and I'm oversimplifying, but a reaction to the Catholic religion, right? Um, so what we were talking about is the goal of, of human life and, and where this original belief flowed from and how it's maybe been a little bit twisted. So Thomas Aquinas identified the goal of human existence as a union and eternal fellowship with God. So that's why I went and, and looked up um, uh, the nature of God. And, and, and so we understand where he's coming from because what I was getting at is his idea of God is a little, little closer to what I was talking about, the Aborigine or the Indian belief, um, a belief more in a presence, an essence, or an energy, even talk like, um, you know, Shinto maybe, um, or physics, where energy is not created, nor is it destroyed. So therefore, it's just recycled, right? So his belief is that God is, is, is all-encompassing, pervasive, but unknowable. So everything is imbued with the power that is God or the essence that is God. It's kind of weird to think, right? I mean, that is really the, the proper way to probably um, worship in this particular uh, religion because they're against idolatry. So to worship an individual at all or even... In essence, 
that is definable kind of goes against the tenets. So this goal is achieved, once again, on the goal of human life, uh, Thomas Aquinas, of course. This goal is achieved through the beatific vision in which a person experiences perfect, unending happiness by seeing the essence of God. Again, flies in the face of the fact that he's unknowable. Um, the vision occurs, well, what he's getting at, the beatific vision is kind of like what the alcoholics call the moment of clarity, or, I mean, um, I guess you could say a Buddhist might call, um, he wouldn't say uh, nirvana or samsara, but certainly enlightenment, maybe you could say, in the broader turn as of understanding, right? A clear understanding. Clear light insight is how the Tibetan Buddhists talk about that, is when you have a breakthrough or an understanding of, of essential nature of yourself or of, of reality. So, again, the goal is achieved through the beatific vision. In fact, I should probably read the definition of beatific vision. In Christian theology, the beatific vision is the ultimate direct self-communication of God to the individual person. A person Possessing the beatific vision reaches as a member of redeemed humanity in the communion of saints, perfect salvation in its entirety, i.e. heaven. The notion of vision stresses that, that stresses the intellectual component of salvation, though it encompasses the whole of human existence of, yeah, I'm just going to have to stop because this is obviously written by somebody who's a true believer because, right, here we go. The Bible teaches, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has even seen or can see. But when God reveals himself to us in heaven, we will then see him face to face. But again, this speaks to, we, 